Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature is in us? I will be featuring authors and educators, practitioners and others whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It's time for practical action and profound inner change so our natural world is valued once again. And today, I'm so delighted to introduce you to Brian Stafford. Brian left his 20-year career as a psychiatrist to become a wilderness guide and agent of human and cultural transformation. He completed the intensive training as a psycho-spiritual wilderness guide with the Animus Valley Institute and now guides individuals to the place they most long and fear to go, their soul place and purpose. He now guides primarily in Ojai, California. Hi, Brian. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me, Judith. Oh, I am so I'm delighted, truly delighted. Brian, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a soul guide. That's kind of a yeah. not a mainstream term yet. Yeah. Well, there's I guess part of the challenge is soul means about 10,000 different things in English. Um, right? There's chicken soup for the soul, which in my understanding, according to the poets and the depth psychologists has nothing to do with soul. And there's uh, the equation of spirit and soul, I would say, in most spiritual disciplines, that there's little differentiation between the two of them. Um, what I mean by soul is um, kind of related to what Carl Jung described, and later that Bill Plotkin has kind of further evolved, is a definition uh, maybe twofold. One is, to use an ecological term, it's our deepest eco-psycho-spiritual niche. It's the unique place in the habitat of the earth that we can fit, that we fill, something like that. So that's one way to describe soul. Uh, another way, um, David White, the poet, might describe it as the truth at the center of the image you were born with. That we know in most indigenous cultures, people come away from pilgrimages or quests or walkabouts or medicine journeys uh, typically with a identifying image, um, and uh, usually that image has uh, a resonance and a deep calling to it that's more like a destiny, and it's usually a, something that's in nature itself. So we can think about most Native Americans, they have some sort of nature-based name, and my understanding is that those are based on the image that they discover in their journey of becoming who they really are. It's no different from us, even though we may not feel indigenous to place, and even though we're um, not connected to our ancestors the way they are or to the land, that we each, when we're born, have a unique identifying image, kind of like an imprint um, that helps guide us through our life if we can connect with it, something like that. So that's what I mean. Well, I, I, those are great uh, ways of explaining soul because you're right. There's many different ways of looking at it depending on our perspective. Um, I'm 
interested in the dream work with especially with archetypes and yeah. finding what those imprints are because I think for me those have really allowed me to take up the mantle of what I came here to do and accomplish Absolutely. and I think that's what we're, we're trying to get to so that we can create and grow a better world a world that's more mature uh, mm-hmm. As Father Rohr would say, you know, so that we yeah. can grow up finally and understand that nature and us are really not separate, you know, yeah. and how can we, you know, further that relationship, so to speak. So well, we've got about, so go ahead. Add something here related to what sure. you said. Mm-hmm. You said related to growing up. And part of growing up is actually growing down. Cool. Tell me yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I think in Western culture, we always think about growing up that the path of maturation is um, toward the future or toward heaven, an upper world kind of definition of oneness with God. And what's really missing from that equation is that really what I understand makes people mature adults heading toward elderhood is they have to mature down, which means they have to go into what the mythologists um, might call the underworld. This place of consciousness, again, where soul resides, this unique place where we can identify who we really are. That in a sense, we each of us have our own myth that we're living into the world. And we have to discover that through ritual, ceremony, mythology, dream work, all those kind of things. And that's really how we define or discover who we really are, is by moving into these practices. So what you're saying is it's it's learning how to really um, go into the inner world you know our inner world and of course dream in the dream work we talk about the underworld in shamanic dream work we go there all the time to try to help ourselves and to help others but it still isn't mainstream yet in terms of practical application you know in everyday life Um, I understand that through this work that you do, uh, as a soul guide, you lead folks into the forest. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So um, many of us who've trained with the Animus Valley Institute, we call ourselves uh, soul initiation guides, which is guiding a kind of rite of passage that's been mostly lost in Western culture, Mm -hmm. which is when people, um, usually at midlife, but hopefully earlier and earlier, they get to a place where they, what really matters is not safety, security, uh, sex, status, um, that kind of social belonging. It's about what, what am I really here to do? Mm-hmm. What is, what am I, why am I put on earth at this time? That kind of question. So we begin um, guiding people from that point on, and actually a little bit earlier. And um, in terms of rites of passage work, because this is kind of a rite of passage, we help people prepare for severance and it's kind of like you really need in order to find out really the deeper parts of yourself you have to let go of the, what you think you are now mm-hmm. right so it involves a death mm-hmm. in a sense a psycho-spiritual death and usually grief and maybe celebration and in healthy indigenous cultures this is normative everyone knows that you have to go through this and it happens a lot earlier mm-hmm. in our culture it rarely happens if at all Maybe people on their deathbed might know what they're really here to do. They have those flashbacks of a soul encounter. But we guide people kind of in ceremonial um, processes through uh, retreats as well as uh, intensives and even vision fasts up to 11 to 12 days of kind of severing from who they really were and descending further 
and um, and through ceremony, ritual, poetry, nature walks, uh, dream work, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And our intent is that people will encounter, or maybe they might open up a couple things. They might discover to be really present to themselves, present to nature, discover how nature mirrors back parts of who they really are, that their emotional way of knowing gets opened up because in a Western culture, we're pretty constricted emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like grief's not really allowed too much in our culture. If you've ever been to funerals, they're rather quiet mm-hmm. compared to most other cultures that aren't Westernized um, and allow people both joy and grief to kind of flow through them. And we also open the way of knowing that we call the deep imaginal, which comes through dream or through these journeys that you're mentioning. Um, so we open up the ways of knowing because those are all important ways of knowing who we really are when we're in the underworld. We need to have access to being present and to our emotions and to the imaginal world um, when we're severing from who we really were. And usually people have very extraordinary encounters, um, both from dream and in conversation with the land about who they might become or what are the barriers there toward who they're becoming, something like that. Well, that's that's also an interesting perspective because in this podcast series, one of the cornerstones is intuition. Mm. And we, I I believe, that is the way we connect with nature. And, of Mm. course, that's the thing we least talk about. You know, we might accept it when we say, I have a gut feeling or guess what? I was thinking of my aunt and she ended up calling in the next hour. But nature reaches us through our intuition and I think that's what we are not taught we're not taught how to use that inner guidance system to connect and as you mentioned to receive uh, insight uh, illumination so to speak about our path and purpose and the other point I want to make is our society is so against death we have new archetypes now such as the vampire and the vampire lives forever and never grows old and what you know what does that say about us too and you're right the indigenous cultures you know that's part of the journey is to understand uh, what needs to die so something new can be reborn yeah well I agree with you on all those points I think part of it is in our culture um, people are afraid to die because they haven't really lived they haven't really lived their deepest purpose, so there's uh, too much grief and a longing to know that, even though they may not know a way how to get there. And our culture is based on, as you mentioned, really safety and security. And most of us don't have any spiritual experiences, even if they've been in a church or a temple or something like that. We have a lot of experiences of community, perhaps, maybe of conformity, quite a few, and maybe of something of spirit, but we rarely uh, have any experience of who we really are, what the natural world really is, because we're primarily in a building. We're in culture. where We have to remember that we're human nature. So we as humans are part of nature. And for many thousands of years, maybe two, three thousand years, uh, Western culture has been kind of moving further and, wh- and further away from nature, seeing it only as a place to extract materials and maybe to recreate but rather as a place, as most uh, healthy indigenous cultures know, this is a place where you find your deepest place of service and wisdom. Isn't it interesting, too, that as we get caught up in the building world of moving from this building to the next building, most people find relief in nature, yet the dot still isn't connected 
that we are part of nature. So how can we, uh, through our own efforts, make a difference in the world, getting that message out that we really need to bring more nature back to our land spaces, you know, get out there more consistently. I find it so ironical that we've come up with the term earthing to put our feet on the ground every day. <laughs> Pardon? Earth bathing and earthing, all of these things are true. It's because we're so disconnected as a people. Yes, but we have to come up with this term to put our feet on the ground on a daily basis. My elders said, get out barefoot every day for 15 minutes. Get your feet on the ground, you know. Uh, so the, um, it's all part of the journey. Uh, you see a lot of changes with folks when you do take them out. And I think one of the things we have to face, which happens to do with a death, is our fear of the dark and our fear of the being in the deep forest by ourselves because after sure. all there's you know there's bears and mountain lions and creepy crawlies and how do we handle that alone sure that's a great question there's a couple of things here one is maybe we project that which is dangerous onto other beings when in fact we're the most biocidal creature on the planet mm -hmm. right but we're terrified that a mountain lion might come stalk us Right. Right. Yes. Um, so we're actually projecting that we're a dangerous individual onto something else like snakes and spiders and all these larger creatures, right? And I think there was a great quote, something like, you're much more likely to be killed by a vending machine falling on you than killed by a wild creature. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. Right? So we think it's the opposite. We think it's really what's out there. And um, most people, many people come on our programs, they are a little bit concerned, especially if they've never camped before. We have people who come on a, like I just finished guiding an 11-day vision fast in um, Capitol Reef National Park and the uh, Bureau of Land Management land just outside there in central Utah. And we had several women and maybe one man who'd never camped before and were terrified of these creatures. Just because they've never spent much time, they didn't have any wilderness skills, they didn't know how to set up a tent or a tarp, um, but they felt the longing. So they came and we teach them some of these, what we call camp craft skills, how do you actually do these things, and it's pretty quickly that they feel comfortable in the wild. They might still be afraid, but they're more excited about seeing something. We give them lots of advice that, you know, bears aren't really interested in you. Mountain lions are really disinterested in you. Um, the creatures that you do come across, speak to them. So it's possible you might actually have a conversation with one of these beings. One of the participants had an experience with a rattlesnake and just began speaking to it and learning quite a bit about who this one is, not seeing it as dangerous, but just a being that knows how to be themselves. And most of us in Western culture, we don't really know where we belong. That's really the question. Um, we might go through phases where we feel like we belong in this kind of school or this kind of profession or this relationship, but we're evolving and uh, most of us never are, find, are finding this what we call the soul place where it's our unique niche or the only place that we can serve at the deepest level. And many people, again at midlife, have this longing and maybe a grief and they're not quite sure what to do with it. You know, it's not depression for sure. It's not, it doesn't need to be medicated, although it's probably medicated away by many well-intentioned but ignorant and ill-informed providers um, or it's numbed through entertainment or substances or escaped altogether so 
and our culture certainly supports all those ways of numbing ourselves. You know, we get addicted to the to the media, and I think our culture is addicted to some very serious violence um, in general. Mm. And what is that all about, too? Uh, is is that a projection that we can accept it that way, so we don't have to deal with it within ourselves? You know. Great. Good observation. Well, um, you also have some thoughts about the breakdown in our ecology and what impacts you're seeing. And if you could share that with us, that would be great. Yeah, pretty simple. I've witnessed a lot. I was in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and uh, I live in Ojai, where the recent fires were in Southern California. And, um, you know, I think climate change is a huge impact across the planet. It's going to be, my suspicion is, it's quicker and even more devastating than what many of the scientists thought, actually. We're seeing so much disruption in terms of uh, ecosystems and climate, and especially around the poles. Uh, like, I think the temperature yesterday at the North Pole was above freezing. Wow. Which is, yeah, terrifying. Yeah, yeah it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a fair amount of denial about that, and uh, the canaries in the coal mine have been talking about it for a long time, but most people don't really see it because they're not looking that closely, nor do they know what a healthy habitat looks like, mm-hmm. maybe part of it. And part of this, one of the analogies maybe is um, to think about most people are afraid in the Northeast to go outside because of ticks and because of Lyme disease and because of how prevalent Lyme disease is now, actually not just in the Northeast, but across the continent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is related to ecological disruption. Mm -hmm. The whole uh, forest that were in the Northeast, you know, they were cut down pretty quickly by people who settled there and uh, replaced with other types of forests. And what forests even remain are not traditional forests, plus they're also um, cut up. They're not these huge swaths of land. So that the ecology of uh, maybe primarily what we would call the the mice and the tick and the deer and the predators has been upset. Mm -hmm. So that there's not very many fox, coyotes, um, hawks, or owls to get rid of all the mice. And so when there's mice everywhere, then the ticks love the mice. And so there's sometimes there can be up to 50 of these kind of deer ticks on a mouse, actually, in the northeast. And that's how all these diseases kind of spread through these different vectors. So when you have an intact ecosystem, everything's in a bit of a balance. When you destroy the ecosystem, everything can go a bit out of balance, especially when you take away the predators, which, again, are the ones that we're afraid of because they might kill our cat or dog, or out west it's usually cattle or sheep. Mm -hmm. So we get rid of the predators, and then what you have is a problem with rodents. And then what happens with rodents is people use poisons to kill the rodents, and then that happens is it destroys the streams, mm-hmm. and that destroys the fish. And so you're just in this incredible cycle of kind of eradicating the natural ecology of the land and using non-natural substances that end up poisoning the whole ecosystem. Well, you bring up some very good points. I had Doug Tallamy on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and he, uh, Bringing Nature Home, and he drives home the point of in a couple of aspects. First, over 4,000 species are endangered of being extinct today, and yeah. that affects everything up the food chain. Okay, secondly, we are not able to understand easily how these species are dying. 
because in our backyards we don't see it. So if we see the bluebird coming in or the cardinal uh, eating and surviving in our backyard, we have no idea that in the whole region their populations have declined because other aspects of the region do not have the plant species that can support the insects, that give them the food so that their populations can stay strong and healthy. And I feel we're, I don't know what the word is, almost anesthetized to understanding how nature works in that way. It's just like, it's like there's a blankness there when you talk to people. I, I do garden clubs and I'm amazed at the lack of some of ecological awareness in their particular groups about how endangered certain species are and what can we do to pre prevent that. So you bring up some really great points. Um, And all of this, of course, takes us into the fear of the forest. I I so feel for parents today in my neck of the woods on the East Coast because there is a tremendous fear. And I have seen people really suffer from Lyme disease. And it's an issue that has to be dealt with and faced, you know, in our region. And I know it's spreading and getting worse and as it moves across the country. Um, so any thoughts about that, you know, in terms of getting over that fear of going into the forest? Well, it's a tough one. You know, um, we don't have that problem out here in the West so much. We have other tick-borne diseases, um, but I've had many friends and colleagues who have suffered from Lyme disease and for many you know it takes years for it to be even diagnosed actually mm-hmm. because the providers aren't thinking about it because they didn't think it was actually prevalent in this area and it's a huge challenge part of it is just um, if we continue to teach our children to be afraid of that which is natural mm-hmm. we're headed in the wrong direction right so this is yes I agree north. with you yes but we also have to take caution when we go to the wild because, you know, things can happen there. Mm-hmm. Usually it's a twisted ankle. That's the primary thing that happens in the wild is you twist your ankle. Um, but you are away from medical care. And with regard to ticks, is the best thing is to teach people how do you really check yourself and how do you shout. Mm-hmm. And because we do run programs where we're in tick-infested areas and there's a lot of ticks, especially the tiny ones, the young ones that are just coming. And partly it's just taking care and having water and washing them off of you. Mm-hmm. So part of it is just kind of developing, I would recommend, like a family routine that we're going to take, we're going to watch and we're going to watch twice a day. In the morning we're doing a quick check and then in the evening we're going to do a check. And the problem is now, again, with climate change is that the season for the ticks is also longer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. As the seasons get shorter and shorter, winter gets shorter and shorter, the ticks are out even more prevalently mm-hmm. early and later in the year. Yeah, we, we do lots of um, prevention here, and we get a yeah. tick on us, but luckily, because of our practices, we catch them quickly, and that's the end of it. I happen to make a, a salve from plants, and it's great for a tick bite, and so far, mm-hmm. we've been okay. Yeah. Um, well, Brian, do you have three practical tips based on your work for our, our listeners today? <laughs> practical tips. Well, uh, one possibility might be to just go for a wander, to frequently go for wanders. Not necessarily hikes, 
Mm -hmm. Ike's nose is about where you're trying to get to. You already know that. It's kind of laid out ahead of you. Wandering is a different kind of archetype and a different kind of striding. And to wander out and choosing something that might serve as a threshold so that you, when you know you cross that, you're in a different consciousness. You're not in city mm -hmm. or suburban consciousness. You're in consciousness of the wild. And that you're really asking these questions. Where do I really belong? Mm -hmm. What do I really long for? What's stalking me? Something like, what things am I avoiding in my life? So that might be one practical kind of suggestion. Maybe it's unpractical in the current world. It might lead you to where you really belong, but make some changes. Um, every, everybody can walk out their door and do a wander. So yeah. it, it's not... I love the term wander because it's not as um, specific or the specific is not the right word, but when we say walk or hike, it's almost like we've got this specific purpose. And what you're suggesting is to wander without purpose and see where it leads us. That's right. It's a specific state of consciousness just to be open. Exactly. To what, and to be drawn by what allures you rather than this is the hike, this is the destination, here's how much time we have to get there, mm -hmm. something. And that might be one thing. The other thing might be to begin um, keeping a dream journal, actually. Again, dreams are uh, kind of the language of the unconscious. It's when the ego, uh, trying to protect us and keep us who we are, um, is asleep. And so we can typically enter what we would call the night world. And there's different wisdom coming from the night world. And so I think beginning just to keep a dream world and realizing that there's this deeper world all the time whenever we allow ourselves to record it there mm -hmm. it's always there mm -hmm. um, and most people say you know I've never haven't remembered a dream in 20 years I'm like well that's okay tonight in your journal get a journal or a piece of paper or even a voice recorder you can use that and maybe write something down like this on the night of the first night of the dream journal process I dreamt dot 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 Mm -hmm. It kind of tells the psyche that you're open to something mm -hmm. and they can respond to it. And that's really my understanding is the more we're filled with longing to move deeper into our nature and the imaginal that comes in dream is one of the most primary parts of our nature. The dream maker responds and we have a dream. Oh, I love that. I know that to be true. But, you know, with I've done a lot of shamanic dream work. I'm a dreamer myself. Uh, I'm hoping to do more teaching on that level just because it's missing and it's yeah. missing with our young children and there's ways of teaching young children and adolescents uh, so that those generations can carry it forward because they're very open you know sure. they, 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 they have no problem they know they love it yeah. <laughs> um, do you happen to have a third one a uh, third one um, yeah here's one maybe for those people who are ready to move more deeply um, away from who they are and deeper into the mystery of who they really are might be to do a type of ceremony, mm -hmm. which would be to, we call it uh, the sinking fire ceremony, but most of the time we're in places where you can't have fires either. So we call it the sinking sticks ceremony. Mm -hmm. And uh, But one thing to do might be to um, maybe journal for a while about, I don't know, 10 to 15 ways that you identify yourself. So these are personas or something like that. It might be, I'm the smart one, I'm the protector, I'm the whatever, I'm not the, so the positives as well as the negatives of the ways that you've defined yourself. 
and they could be great. They're probably wonderful parts of yourself, but some of the other ones, like frequently people will write, I'm not creative, I'm not artistic, right? So we ask them to take all of these things and on a piece of paper, you're just collecting, I don't know, 10 to 15 sticks, dig a hole ceremonially, ceremonially and say something like, you know, I've defined myself in a certain way for such a long time, and I'm actually not sure if that's true. But I'm willing to release the way I've identified myself so that something else might come to me. And then we ask them one by one to drop the sticks into the – they usually do this individually, mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. Drop these sticks that represent something into the hole, and they might state something about it. Here's the story of how I became known as the brainy one or the funny one or whatever. And they tell it, and they tell it with gratitude about what it's brought them. And then they say, and I release my attachment to this way of understanding myself. Mm -hmm. Put it in the hole. And then after they've done all the ways they've identified, they cover it up. And the ceremony is completed. That actually is a pretty powerful process that begins, um, in some sense, a rewilding of the psyche. Mm -hmm. Part of this severance that I mentioned here is that once you release about who you understand who you are, but you long to know more deeply who you are, the psyche begins responding. You might begin having dreams or other synchronous things begin happening, and you just keep going from there. Well, what I've learned in that kind of process is that when Mm -hmm. we really uh, deeply commit to something, and it could be as simple as the ceremony is with a little bit of work and a little bit of digging in, our soul responds tenfold. And it's amazing how we're guided in the most unexpected ways if we're just if we just stay open. And I love that about the process. And that to me is where the magic and the mystery is of being here as a human being. And that's mm-hmm. part of what we we don't have in our society in some ways. We don't have that little bit of magic and mystery in terms of understanding who we are. That's right. Uh, Brian, how about before? I've asked Brian to share a poem because I know that's a big part of the soul work, that creative aspect. But before he does that, could you please give us your contact information and any classes coming up that you'd like to share? Sure. Well, there's maybe one invitation. Another. Most of this work that um, I guide, I've learned through Bill Plotkin and the Animus Valley Institute, which is in Durango. And if anyone's at all intrigued by what I've spoken of here, you may want to get his book, Soulcraft, Crossing into the Mysteries of Nature and Psyche. It's really the book that kind of describes this process of the journey to soul. Um, so I guide with them, and I have a couple of trainings coming up on Vancouver Island for some people who are interested. Usually they're therapists or other mentors who are interested in this holding of the psyche. How do we open our imagination? How do we open our hearts? How do we open our emotional bodies? All those different kind of things. And then I also am guiding another uh, Animus Quest in uh, Aravaipa Canyon, which is in um, Arizona between Tucson and uh, Phoenix in November. And those are available on the website of Animus. And then I also guide programs for healthcare providers through a company called Wildernesses Medicine, and you can just Google that and find that website. And in Southern California, I guide through a group that I call Eco Psyche Artistry, which is kind of to make fun of ego psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm changing that name to Earth Soul Purpose shortly, but you can Google that and find different programs here. If you want personal mentoring or a conversation, I'm open to it as well. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. Those are great resources. And for those of you who haven't checked out 
Brian's website and Bill Plotkin with the Animus Valley. They have really great information there, books there, and programs. Mm. So how about a poem before we sign off? Sure. I was trying to figure out what would be the best one to share, and I actually decided to share the first one that came to me when I went on my vision fast, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I, in this poem, you might hear that... Um, Nature is mirroring a place of where I am in my own life. Because I went out onto this vision fast. Um, a very highly successful physician in academia, but wondering where do where do I serve now? You know, now that the planet is heating up and being plundered and there's so much social injustice, there has to be a deeper place for me to serve than to medicate or to heal as a therapist. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those. They're just I got to that point where there was something deeper. Mm-hmm. And so I went out on a vision fast, and uh, after a ceremony, I noticed um, a plant, which I'll describe in the poem, and then I wrote this poem spontaneously. Or maybe the poem wrote me. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this one's called But Not Forever. In the middle of the sandy wash that lies beneath the immense rock swale that looks like elephant skin sits a vibrant, spiny cactus made of 80 green barbs with light brown tips and sharp teeth along the spines. The spines protect the heart of the cactus. Amongst the spines are delicate white hairs, four for each spine it appears. It thrives in the wash, collecting the rainwater through its roots and holding the liquid in its heart and spines. There are days when it is submerged by the flood of rainwater, anchored by its root. There are seasons when very little water comes through the wash, and the spines protect the sacred liquid from creatures wishing to lap at the water at the core. Attached to its base and lying in a downstream direction is its former self. No spines, no hairs, just the husk of the dried-out heart. How does the cactus know when it's time to die? Does new potential push it off its main root? Do wander vandals make it through the defenses and create a sacred wound? Or does it die in its own timing, sharing the water from its center with the lizards in the wash, allowing new life to spring from its new heart? These are mysteries I do not understand. These are mysteries I do not understand. The raven soars high above the land. The spines protect the heart, but not forever. The white hairs wither and blow away, and the, dr- and the heart dries up, but not forever. A new heart, deeper roots, succulent green spines, and soft white hairs sprout from the new soul that holds the source, continuing life in the middle of a dry, sandy wash below an immense rock swale that looks like elephant skin. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, Brian, all I can say is thank you. I am deeply grateful for you joining us today. And I hope everyone feels as inspired as I do by your talk, by your advice, by your wisdom. Uh, This is Judith Dreyer, author of At the Garden's Gate, book and blog. For more information, go to my website, judithdreyer.com, and you will find information about this podcast as well as the transcript. I like to end with a quote from Paul Hawken, environmentalist and author, who reminds us, Sustainability, ensuring the future life on Earth, is an infinite game, the endless expression on behalf of all. Enjoy your day.